Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. We're going to focus on verse 30 of Romans 8 this morning, continuing to examine this golden chain of salvation that starts in verse 29 and goes through the end of verse 30. And there are five links in this chain. You may remember from last time. We looked at the first two then. Those were foreknowledge and predestination. And we'll look at the remaining three this morning, which are calling, justification, and glorification. We'll examine each of those golden links together and think about how they should shape the way that we live our lives. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this golden chain of salvation. You are the one who forged it from all eternity past, and you are the one who holds it together. We thank you also for revealing it to us in these verses so that we could know all that you've done, all that you are doing, all that you will do to bring us from death and sin to life and glory. So please open our eyes more this morning to the wonder of these truths and cause them to shape the way we live our lives more and more each day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter eight, I'm gonna start reading at verse 28 and then go down through verse 30. Again, our focus this morning will be on verse 30. And let's remember together that this is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As you can see in your sermon notes, we'll talk about the remaining three links in the golden chain of salvation in turn. First, calling, then justification, and finally, glorification. But I want to start by making sure we're clear on who Paul is talking about in these verses. Maybe that's obvious to you, maybe not. But he's talking about believers, those who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. When he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and so on, he's not talking about all people, he's talking about believers. And he's not talking about a subset of believers, a special class of believers, but rather all believers, all those God chose to save. So look back up at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So verse 28 establishes that he's talking about believers, described as those who love God and those who are called according to God's purpose. And you can just keep following the trail right through verses 29 and 30. The trail is marked by the word those. Like some of the hiking trails around here are marked by a white rectangle on the trees. The trail is marked 
by the word those. So reading verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Six thoses marking the trail. It's the same group of people throughout. It's all believers. And nobody's left behind on this trail. The same number of people at the head of the trail, which is foreknowledge, will arrive at the final destination of glorification. That's a wonderful truth. It's not like the NCAA men's basketball tournament, March Madness, which many of you are familiar with, where you start out with 64 teams or so, but after each round there are fewer and fewer teams, so 64 down to 32 in the second round, then down to the Sweet 16, and then the Elite Eight, and then the Final Four, then the final game, and then there's only one team still standing, at the end. 64 at the beginning, but then only one at the end. That's not how it is with the golden chain of salvation. Those whom God foreknew before the foundation of the world, those are the very people he predestined. And the people he predestined, those are the very people he calls. And the people he calls, those are the people he justifies. And the people he justifies... Those are the very same people who will be glorified when Christ returns. Nobody's left behind. Nobody's eliminated. Everyone God plans to save, he saves. Everyone God determines to rescue, he rescues. Everyone God foreordains to bring safely home to glory, he brings safely home to glory. And what a great encouragement that can be to us this morning. If we are in Christ, we are linked to this golden chain of salvation. And this golden chain of salvation is unbreakable. And our link to it is also unbreakable. If God foreknew you and predestined you, if he's called you and justified you, he will most certainly one day glorify you. You're not going to be left behind. You're not going to be eliminated. God's going to finish what he started in you. And let me just say, regardless of what round you're in or where you are on the trail, please take some encouragement from that truth this morning. Draw strength and and hope and help from that truth. Because this golden chain is unbreakable and because your link to it is unbreakable, you can live with confidence and assurance and joy no matter your circumstances. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Well, with that in mind, let's think briefly about each of these three links. And for each of them, I want to ask and answer two questions. What does this doctrine mean? And how should it shape our lives? What does this doctrine mean? And how should it shape our lives? So first, calling. What does calling mean? Well, we talked about this recently when we looked at verse 28. Calling here refers to what's termed effectual calling, which again is where God calls us to himself in salvation, not just by the external call of the gospel when someone shares the gospel with us, but also by the internal call of the Holy Spirit who regenerates our hearts and enables us to respond to the external call in repentance and faith. The external call is an invitation. The internal call is a summons. The external call is heard by the ear. The internal call by the heart. The external call is where the sower sows the seed. The internal call is where the spirit softens the soil so that it can receive the seed. So that the seed of the gospel can take root in the heart and germinate in repentance and faith. And when Paul mentions calling in verse 30, he's referring to effectual calling. He's referring to the internal call. He can't be referring to the external call that goes out to all who hear the gospel because the call in verse 30 is limited to those who are predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. More people are called externally than are predestined. As Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. This calling in verse 30 is referring to the internal call, to the effectual call. It's the same call as in verse 28, those who are called according to his purpose. And this is the beginning of the application of redemption. Foreknowledge and predestination are the planning of redemption, Calling and so on are the application of redemption. Foreknowledge and predestination happen before time and space. Calling and so on happen in time and space. Foreknowledge and predestination are the blueprints. Calling, justification, glorification are the actual construction. And calling is where the foundation of that construction is laid. Effectual calling. Turn to the back of your hymnals for just a moment, if you would, to page 871. Page 871, I want to read again the Westminster Shorter Catechism definition of effectual calling on page 871. It's an excellent summary of what the Bible teaches about effectual calling. And we're going to look at question and answer number 31 on page 871. Number 31 on that page. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us, in the gospel. The Bible teaches that before we were converted, we were dead in sin and blind to our sin. 
But then the Spirit convinced us of our sin and misery, as it says here. He opened our eyes to see our sin, to see our misery. We were in the dark, but the Spirit enlightened our minds in the knowledge of Christ. He shined into our minds the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Our wills were hardened, but the Spirit renewed our wills. He softened our wills. And he persuaded and enabled us to embrace Jesus Christ who was freely offered to us in the external call of the gospel. We encourage you to keep your hymnals open or perhaps nearby. We're going to return to the catechism when we talk about justification and glorification shortly. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's this first point. God called us effectually to himself in salvation. That's what this doctrine means. Second question, though, we want to ask is, how should this doctrine shape our lives? Well, among other things, I think it should make us humble and thankful as opposed to prideful or ungrateful. Humble and thankful. Humble because we didn't call ourselves Thankful because God called us. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When God called us, we didn't even want to be called. We weren't looking to be called. He called us even though we had already blocked his number and even turned our phones off towards him. God called us when we were dead. It was like when Jesus called Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, He came out of the tomb. We were like Lazarus, dead in our sin, buried in unbelief. But God called us, gave us life, and we came out and embraced Jesus Christ by faith. So the question is, how should that shape our lives? How should that influence the way we live each day? Well, think of what the rest of Lazarus's life might have been like. Think of what his character probably would have been like. Humble and thankful. That Jesus would give him new life. That Jesus would call him when he was already dead. I bet if you had lived back then and you met Lazarus after his resurrection you'd probably have noticed that there was something different about him, about his character, about the way he talked, about what he talked about, something different in the way he treated you and how he spoke about his Savior. That's how we should be. That's how this doctrine should shape our lives. It should make us humble and thankful, not prideful. We shouldn't be prideful people. Not ungrateful humble and thankful because God called us when we were dead and gave us life. 
But as you can see in verse 30, after calling comes justification. Justification. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Again, same group of people. Nobody's left behind on the trail. Nobody's been eliminated in the previous round. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So first, what does this doctrine mean? What does justification mean? Well, we've talked about justification quite a bit already in this series on the book of Romans. But let me just remind us briefly what justification means. When God justifies someone... He declares them righteous in his sight, not because of anything in them, but only because of the righteousness of Christ. So God is the judge, and we're the accused standing before him, and we stand before him guilty as charged, guilty on all accounts. We have nothing to say. We have no excuse for our sin. We have no defense And we deserve to be punished to the full extent of the law. God strikes down his gavel, but instead of hearing guilty, we hear not guilty. Not guilty. He declares us righteous in the right, in his sight. Not because he got the verdict wrong, but because our guilt has been atoned for by Christ. And the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us or counted as ours. And on the basis of the cleansing blood and imputed righteousness of Christ, God declares us righteous in his sight. A righteous God takes unrighteous people and declares them righteous based on the righteousness of his Son all while remaining righteous himself. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, 26, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is based on double imputation. Double imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ or reckoned to Christ, and he pays for them on the cross. And Christ's righteousness is imputed to us or counted as ours. Double imputation. Our sins imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. And we are justified, and it is just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd always obeyed. It's a good way to remember the truth of justification. And in terms of our standing before God, we are as righteous as Christ, because we are clothed in His righteousness. We owe God an infinite debt, and Jesus pays the debt, but he also credits to our account infinite funds. He erases our guilt and writes in his own obedience next to our name. 
we are justified. Let's see how the Shorter Catechism puts it. If you'll pull your hymnals back out, look again at page 871. 871, question and answer number 33 this time. What is justification? Again, a good biblical summary here, a summary of the biblical teaching on justification. Number 33 answers, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. We receive remission and righteousness by faith alone, not by our works. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, that's what justification means. How then should it shape our lives? How should it shape the way we live? Well, if the doctrine of effectual calling should make us humble and thankful, I think the doctrine of justification should make us joyful. Joyful. We of all people should be a joyful people as the people of God. We're no longer like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress before he was assured of his salvation, trudging along with an enormous burden on his back, weighing him down all the time, we no longer carry the burden of our sins on our back because Jesus paid it all. We don't have to be all hunched over in our soul. That weight has been released from our shoulders and we can have a hop in our step spiritually. Not because it is well with our circumstances, but because it is well with our soul. Because our sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We no longer stand on the sinking sand of our own righteousness. We stand on the solid rock of the righteousness of Christ. And our justification should make us joyful. If you had stage four cancer and it had spread to all of your major organs and then suddenly you were miraculously healed, you'd be joyful You'd be full of joy. Well, how much more joyful to be healed of the cancer of sin, of the cancer of our guilt and the guilt of our sin. Romans 5, 1 and 2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God has healed us of the guilt of our sin. Therefore, we can be joyful in him. And if you had cancer, and you went in for a scan one day, and it was all gone, and you walked out to the parking lot just overflowing with joy, your heart full of joy, And you got to your car and there was a parking ticket on your windshield. 
Would you fall down onto the curb and bawl your eyes out over that parking ticket? Of course not. Because the joy of being cancer-free would far outweigh the trouble of getting a parking ticket. Something like that is what we want to shoot for in terms of having joy in our justification. We want the joy of our justification to outweigh the troubles of life in this fallen world. We want the joy of our justification to sustain us through the troubles of life in this fallen world, which are far greater than a parking ticket. Not to make light of our troubles that we face. Many of them are far more significant than that, far more painful than that. We do experience sorrow in this life, and there is a place for lament for the Christian. But because we are justified before God, because we have peace with God, even when we are sorrowful, we can be, like Paul, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We can always rejoice because we're always justified. Our justified status doesn't change. It doesn't decrease and it cannot increase. And so even in our darkest moments, in our deepest struggles, we always have cause for rejoicing. We always have a source of joy at hand. We always have access to a well of joy that will never run dry. We've been set free from sin and have been clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. John Bunyan, one of the Puritan writers, came to see the joyfulness of this one day as he was taking a walk in a field. He writes about this in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He writes, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just there next to him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. How should the doctrine of justification shape our lives? It should make us joyful because we've been healed of the guilt of our sin and clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. Well, as you can see in verse 30 again, after justification comes finally glorification. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified. So what does the doctrine of glorification mean and how should it shape our lives? Glorification is the final destination. It's where we're headed. It's what we have to look forward to as Christians. It'll happen when Christ returns. 
And we'll get resurrected bodies to go with our perfected souls. And we'll enjoy eternal life on the new earth with God and his people forever and ever. That's glorification. Turn to the back of your hymnal one more time. Page 872 this time, 872. And we're going to look at question and answer number 37 and 38. Page 872, number 37. Question asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Wonderful truths summarizing the truth of Scripture. That's what will happen to us when we die if we've put our trust in Christ. Our souls will be made perfect in holiness and we will immediately pass into glory. We'll be with Christ in heaven. And if you have lost a loved one who's died in the Lord recently, just meditate on those wonderful truths, those wonderful realities for all who have put their trust in him. But that's not our final destination. That's actually not our glorification. Our glorification is described in the next one, number 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So even after number 37 has happened, which will be wonderful beyond our imagination, number 38 is still to come. It's like we sing in the hymn, For All the Saints, the golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. But that's not where the hymn ends. There's another verse or two. In the next verse, we sing, But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah. Number 37 is glorious, but it's just the appetizer. The full meal is number 38. The full meal is glorification. Now, kids, you may have noticed something about glorification in verse 30, and maybe it seemed a bit odd to you. Look again at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So far, so good. Those things have already happened to us believers. We've already been predestined. We've already been called. We've already been justified, right? But then notice how the verse ends. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you may be wondering, why does it say he also glorified and not he also will glorify 
he also glorified is in the past tense, right? But our glorification is in the future. It hasn't happened yet. So why is glorified in the past tense? Well, he's not saying it's already happened. He's saying it's so certain that it's as if it's already happened. It's not been done yet, but it's as good as done. It has been written, though it hasn't yet happened. Kind of like some of the visions in the book of Revelation about how God did this, or God did that, or then this happened, or that happened, using the past tense for things that actually haven't happened yet in some cases, but are sure to happen because they are written. They are the things that must soon take place, Revelation 1.1 says, though they're put in the past tense. Same here. Our glorification is so certain that it's as if the future tense isn't strong enough. And so the past tense is used. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification is the final link in the golden chain of salvation, and the whole chain is ours in Christ, even though this final link hasn't happened yet. It's ours even though we haven't experienced it yet. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's what glorification means. Let me close this morning with how glorification should shape our lives. Calling should make us humble and thankful. Justification should make us joyful. And glorification should make us, perhaps you could think of a few, hopeful is what I want to talk about. Hopeful instead of hopeless or despairing. It should fill our hearts with hope. We all face many hardships in this life. Maybe for you it's primarily sickness and weakness this morning. Maybe it's the pain of grief or loss. Maybe it's financial hardships and the unanswered questions that come with them. Maybe it's your own sin and temptation that you're facing or the sin of others perhaps. Maybe it's a difficult relationship. Maybe it's the state of our country or of the world in general. Maybe it's a crushing disappointment. We all face many hardships in this life. All of us do. We're all in the same boat together. And it's easy for us to lose hope in the midst of these storms. It's easy for hope to leak out of us, to drain out of us. But this doctrine of glorification is designed by God to give us hope. It's meant to help us endure the hardships of this life because we know what's coming. We're like prisoners of war who've found out that rescue is on the way. And therefore, we can endure the hardships of captivity because we know that soon we'll be free. We're not free yet. So the hardships remain. But we know that help is on the way and that gives us hope in the midst of those hardships. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's where we're headed. And that's where we will one day arrive by God's preserving grace because he is faithful as we sang earlier. Last word. As we examine this golden chain of salvation, I want you to notice, above all, that God is the one who does all these things. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is the one who foreknows and predestines and calls and justifies and glorifies. From the first link in the golden chain to the last, he is the initiator. He is the actor. He is the provider. He is the sustainer. His power is our trust, and his faithfulness is our hope. Power is not in us. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's in our God. He is a never-failing power source and a never-ending well of hope. And he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He has promised. He started the work before there was time. And he will finish the work at the end of time. And in the meantime, he will keep working. He will keep working. He'll finish the work on that day and he'll keep working on this day and every day until that day comes. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the golden chain of salvation. We thank you for for knowing us and predestining us Thank you for calling us and justifying us and for glorifying us on that day. Make us humble and thankful and joyful and hopeful. Help us to put all our trust and all our hope in you and in you alone and to be encouraged that you will keep working in us every day until the day of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Let's take a minute now during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard.